You are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Hey everybody, my name is David Guzik and I'm so pleased that you could join me for today's question and answer program. Uh, what we do is on Thursday afternoons, whenever we're able to, we come over on the YouTube channel and I just come on and take live questions and answers from those who can view in live at the time. Uh, I'm a pastor, I'm a Bible teacher, and I have a written commentary on the entire Bible that some people find useful and is available absolutely free on the internet at EnduringWord.com or over at the website of my good friends, the Blue Letter Bible, blueletterbiblebb.org is another place where my Bible commentary can be found. What we do on these Thursday afternoons is I begin with a lead question that usually comes in from an email or a response to a uh, video, a comment on a video, or maybe through social media. We start out with a lead question. I talk about that for maybe 15 minutes or so. And then for the remaining portion of the hour, we take whatever questions I can get to that come in on the live chat. So you are invited to bring your questions and your comments and write them in on our live chat. And again, I'll get to as many of them as I possibly can. I can't promise that I can get to every question. Sometimes I inadvertently skip over a question, uh, but we do archive them all. And I try to go through and on pre-recorded programs, get to the ones that I couldn't get to. Uh, during our time together. So here's our lead question for today. Does the Bible allow women to work outside the home? I suppose you could phrase that a few different ways. Does the Bible forbid women to work? Does the Bible forbid women to work outside the home? Whatever way you want to phrase it, I think you get the idea. And this is a question that comes from Lewis. Lewis writes, Hi, David. I am a member of First Baptist Church. I've been following you for a while. I've learned a lot from sermons. I often listen to your commentary. They're very inspiring. And then Lewis writes, I am part of a Bible study group online with 22 people from five different countries. We are Haitians. By the way, I love that. 22 people getting together, a Bible study group online. They're from five different countries. And apparently Lewis is from Haiti. So God bless you, Lewis. And it sounds wonderful, the Bible study group that you have together. Now, Lewis says, I have a question that is causing a lot of problems between us. And here's the question. Based on Genesis 3.16, most men in the group believe that women must not work. Their duty is to conceive and take care of their household. They believe him, uh, the glorious uh, proto-evangelion, what we call the, the first stating of the gospel, that Satan would be defeated by the seed of the woman. Now, in verse 16, God turns his attention to the woman and says this, To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Now, again, th this is an intimation. Part of the curse upon women has to do with the bearing of children, and you could say the bringing forth of children, the raising of children. Then as we come to verse 17, it says, Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. And then down into verse 19, it says, 
in the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. And then, of course, for out of it you are taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Now, again, after the sin of Adam and Eve, and after their hiding from God, then God pronounced these curses upon them, first upon the serpent, then upon uh, Eve, then finally upon Adam, the man. Now, part of the curse upon, upon the woman deals with childbearing. Again, we'll emphasize back at verse 16, where it says, uh, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain, you shall bring forth children. And likewise, part of the curse upon the man deals with work. Uh, verse 17, in toil, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. In verse 19, in the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. Now, because part of the curse upon the woman deals with childbearing, and part of the curse upon the man deals with work, some people have concluded this is the Bible's way of saying that women should only bear children and raise children, and only men should work. Now, maybe we would think that if that was the only thing that the Bible said about this. Here's what I want you to know. This isn't the only thing that the Bible says about this. There are many passages that show us godly women who worked outside the home. Now, I'll get to those in just a moment. A couple other things I want to say. Lewis, what I want to say is um, your partners in your Bible study online, it's not a crazy conclusion that they come to just focusing on Genesis chapter 3. But what's important to notice is that's not the only place the Bible speaks of this. Now, I do want to say that it's true that God gives women a special role in the most important work in the world, in the nurture and raising of children. Listen, if we don't bear children and nurture children and raise children, the world will end in a generation. This is something, in fact, that Paul emphasized in 1 Timothy chapter 3 when writing by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit about the respective roles of men and women in the church. After noting that, Paul added a special mention of the unique and important role that women have in childbearing. God wanted us to remember that. Now, I want to emphasize, of course, women do not play the only role in raising children. Fathers are important also. We never want to diminish that one bit. Yet, I think we would say that mothers do have an irreplaceable role. I would say they have an irreplaceable role, of course, biologically. Men can't bear children, but women can both biologically and maternally, mothers have an irreplaceable role. But here's another aspect. We never want to imply that this is the only work that women can and should do. It's true. God has given them a unique gift, a unique calling in the bearing, the nurturing, and the raising of children. No doubt about it. But the Bible does not indicate for us that that is the only work that women can do or should do. We, we do not see this biblically. 
The Bible shows women working outside the home. We'll take a look at that in just a moment. But we also know this. We also know that not every woman can be a mother or will be a mother or will mother children in her home for all of her life. In other words, what we're talking about are general principles for womankind in general. There's a, a variance as God's will may be applied to the specific woman in a specific situation. So we're speaking very generally. But here, I want to get back to this idea that the Bible shows us women working outside the home. The, the first place I want to take you to to demonstrate that is Proverbs 31. Take a look at the Proverbs 31 woman. Now, the Proverbs 31 woman is proverbial, to, to coin a phrase, for her godliness and her example. And Proverbs 31, 13, in describing this remarkable woman of virtue, says, she seeks wool and flax and willingly works with her hands. Verse 16, she considers a field and buys it, and from her prophets she plants a vineyard. Uh, verse 18, she perceives that her merchandise is good and her lamp does not go out by night. And then down to verse 24, she makes linen garments and sells them and supplies sashes for the merchants. Now, do you see those passages that really speak to us of this exalted woman of virtue who by no means is a perfect woman? Uh, we, we never want to put pressure on women to be uh, the Proverbs 31 woman in some kind of perfection sense. But, but this is a profile of a godly woman. And we see that she makes linen garments and sells them and supplies sashes for the merchants. She works. She buys a field and plants it. Uh, she makes a vineyard out of it. She's working and she's doing business with the outside world. Again, the Proverbs 31 woman worked outside the home. I think there's another notable example for us that we can find in the New Testament, a woman that's held in great regard. Acts chapter 16, verse 13 speaks to us of a woman named Lydia. It says, now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshiped God the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. D did you notice that there? This woman, Lydia, uh, part of the early church who was instrumental in founding the church there in Philippi, she's a traveling businesswoman, obviously working outside the home, and she is presented only in praiseworthy terms in the scriptures. If there was some inherent sin or failing before God in this idea of working outside the home, then I don't think that the Bible would present Lydia to us in such a complimentary way. And let me give one more example here. And this example, I'll admit, is maybe stretching things just a bit, but I just want to show it to you anyway. Luke chapter 8, beginning here in the middle of verse 1, says, and the twelve were with him and certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, out of whom had come seven demons, and Joanna the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who provided for him from their substance. 
Now, notice this. What this tells us of is some enterprising women among the uh, disciples of Jesus. Not that they were among the 12 disciples, but they were in that larger group of disciples. And they had money. They provided for Jesus and the apostles, as we read here, from their substance, which gives us some kind of indication that these women had resources. Now, again, I, I say that maybe this is an indication of these women working, but I think it's at least a note towards it in that direction. So uh, I, I can't say categorically from Luke chapter 8 that these women worked outside the home, but it's, it's possible. You might even say likely, but it's not certain. Now, from these examples and more, I don't think that we can at all say that God commands that women should not work outside the home and that the only work they can do is in the bearing and raising of children. Now, let, let me say this. To properly raise children is a lot of work. And if it is possible for the mother and the family to give that her full attention, it is a blessing for her, for her children, and for everyone else. I would even say that that is a blessing worth making sacrifices for. There are many times when it would be better for a family to accept a somewhat lower standard of living with fewer luxuries and niceties than to have the mom be home for the kids for as long, or to have the mom be at home uh, for those kids as long as possible. So again, it's a blessing for the mom to not have to work outside the home because believe me, raising kids and managing a household is a lot of work. So it's a blessing if it's possible. But we have to say, every family is different. And these are things that families should prayerfully seek God's wisdom for. Jesus warned us about taking the traditions of man and making them into the law of God. That is something we should never do. We never want to forbid something unless the Bible forbids it. So th that's basically the answer. Let me wrap up with some conclusions here. Number one, the Bible does give women a special role in childbearing and child raising. N number two, the Bible does not forbid women to work outside the home outside the special role that they have in childbearing and child raising. And the Bible does show us several examples of godly women working outside the home. But let me make two other principles here or applications. The, the way we look at this, and Lewis's question reminds us that we shouldn't treat one Bible passage as if it says everything the Bible says on a subject. We need to do what 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15 tells us to do, we need to rightly divide the word of truth. And that means not just taking one verse and acting as if it's the only thing the Bible says. We need to bring together everything the Bible says about a subject and rightly divide it. And then let me conclude with this. We can't make religious rules and laws, especially for others, where the Bible does not. In other words, 
if a husband and wife come to the get together to the conclusion, God does not want the wife to work outside the home. She wants her to, he wants her to invest her energies into the home. That's fine for them. And I would even say guided by the Holy Spirit. And, and I would trust that God would give wisdom to that couple in that. But it would be wrong for them to make that a law for other believers or a religious rule for other believers. So, Lewis, I hope that helps you. Thank you very much for your question. Let me take a look now at the side chat and we'll take a look at the questions that have come in now. Uh, hello to Denise and to Luciana. Um, Jose asked a question. According to Acts chapter 21, verse 24, what does it mean when it says that Paul kept the law? Are we Christians supposed to keep the law as Paul did? Your thoughts, please. Thank you. Thanks. Okay, Lewis, I, I want to look that verse up because I do think it's important here. Um, you say it's Acts chapter 21, verse 24. Let's take a look at that together here. Acts chapter 21, because I think I know what your question is getting at here. Um, okay, Acts chapter 21, verse 24. We see here that Paul says, take them, or excuse me, um, these are the apostles in Jerusalem speaking to Paul. Take them and be purified with them. Pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and that all may know those things of which they were informed concerning that you are nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. Okay, I find this fascinating uh, question for us here because, Jose, um, I think what it tells us that is in general, Paul continued to observe the Mosaic law. And this is what I mean by in general. Paul observed the law of Moses uh, generally in regard to dietary instructions, uh, maybe in regard to the Sabbath or at least some aspects of the Sabbath, uh, maybe in terms of other religious customs that he inherited. Paul, in general, continued to keep the Mosaic law. Now, we would say there were some places where he definitely did not keep the Mosaic law, the Mosaic laws regarding sacrifice. Paul would not have continued to offer animal sacrifice for the atonement of sin. Although it's interesting, in the very same context that you bring this up, Acts chapter 21, when Paul visited Jerusalem at the conclusion of one of his missionary journeys, it says that he came with an offering of his hair which leads us to believe that Paul was keeping a Nazarite vow. So I guess what I'm saying is Paul was not allergic to the laws and the ceremonies of Judaism even after he became a Christian, as long as those laws and ceremony did not conflict with what Jesus came and established by the new covenant. Paul was probably more observant of the Mosaic law, continuing on, uh, than we might expect. Now, we can ask why. Again, it's very important to ask why. Paul did not do this as the ground of his righteousness with God. Rather, he just did it um, as a demonstration of love and honor to God, just wanting to please God, 
but not believing that that law observance made him more accepted before God. So, Jose, I guess really I think that's what it's getting at. In general, Paul continued to keep the Mosaic law, though we would certainly not say in every point did he keep the Mosaic law. And this was observed by other people. Okay, Denise asks, um, do we actually see our loved ones in heaven? Do we love them like we did on earth, specifically a husband, because I hear there's no marriage in heaven, kind of confused. All right, Denise, you ask a great question. First of all, we will know each other in heaven. And I can base this on a few things. First of all, um, somebody asked Charles Spurgeon this question. Uh, am I going to know my loved ones in heaven? Spurgeon said, well, do, do you know them now? And the person kind of thought that was a stupid response. But he said, well, yes, of course I know them now. I know my father. I know my mother. I know my husband. I know my wife. I know these relations in heaven. I, I know them now. And Spurgeon just simply said this. He said, well, you're not going to be more stupid in heaven than you are here on earth. Well, I mean, I guess that's a pretty fair statement, isn't it? We're not going to know less in heaven than we know on earth. So, yes, we will know our friends, our relatives. Now, regarding our husband and wife, I think we will know them and we will know them in terms of relationship. We just will not have the marriage relationship that we have with them now. As Jesus said, that in heaven, we are like the angels in this respect, that we don't marry, we're not given in marriage, that there's not the marriage relationship that lasts into eternity. And the simple reason for this, I think, is that we have a greater relationship that dominates our life. Look, practically speaking, a marriage relationship tends to play a dominant role in a person's life. Properly so. There's something wrong if it doesn't. That's on earth. In heaven, the greatness of our relationship with God and the perfection of our relationship with everybody else will mean that our marriage relationship is not the same in heaven as it is on earth. So I think that's the simple and most straightforward way to explain it. We will certainly know one another in heaven. And if I could say, that is going to be one of the chief joys of heaven, to have unlimited time with those that we know and love and delight to spend time with. You know, my wife, Ingalil and I, we were reflecting on this the other day, how many precious, dear friends and colleagues we have um, in the ministry, of course, we have many precious friends outside the ministry as well. But in the ministry, we have so many precious friends and colleagues. But to be honest, we, we don't have a lot of time to spend with them. Why? Because we're busy with the work of the Lord and they're busy with the work of the Lord. And, and so we value the time we do carve out to spend with uh, one another. But you always kind of wish it was more. And in heaven, it will be more. So again, Denise, I hope that answers your question. Let me go on here. Um, Susie says, can Christians eat meat with blood? All right, Susie, you're bringing up a very good question that kind of comes back to Acts chapter 15. Now, this idea that 
the people of God should keep certain dietary regulations goes back to the Mosaic laws, the kosher laws. And the kosher laws were not only about what meat you could and couldn't eat, like you couldn't eat pork, of course, you couldn't eat shellfish. But those Mosaic laws were also about how the meat that you could eat, such as beef coming from a cow or a steer, the meat that you could eat, how it was slaughtered. And it had to be bled properly. So according to a proper kosher slaughtering of an animal, you first cut the jugular vein. This is what I understand, at least I'm no expert on this. You first cut the jugular vein of the animal and you let it bleed out as much as possible so that there is as little blood in the meat as possible. Now, obviously, there is always some blood remaining in whatever meat you eat. I mean, even if it gets down to the molecular level, there's blood in that meat. So, so we're not talking about getting every molecule of blood, but really this is talking about the obvious. You might want to say the grotesque eating of meat. That, that was the Old Testament law. Now, your question is, do those laws apply to believers under the new covenant? And, and I would say no. Now, the easy answer is, well, no, we're not under the old covenant. We don't have to keep kosher dietary laws. That's what God showed Peter. That's what God showed Paul. It's very clear in the New Testament that believers, those under the new covenant, are not under kosher dietary regulations. But there's one passage that causes people some, uh, I don't know if you say concern, but some question about that. Um, it's in Acts chapter 15, and it deals with the whole council of uh, Jerusalem where they spoke to uh, the believers in the first century. And uh, here's what it says here um, at the end of this letter to that they wrote to the early Christians. It says here, um, again, this is Acts chapter 15, verse 28. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and just to lay upon you no greater burden than these, that you abstain from things offered to idols, in other words, meat sacrificed to idols, um, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you do these things, keep yourself from these things, you will do well. Now, on this basis, there are some believers who say, no, uh, the Bible says here in the New Testament, that we should uh, not keep, we should observe this law, I should say, that we should um, do this. Now, what, what I want you to understand here, though, is that there is a specific context to this message. And the message is simply this, that they were to do this in light of the fact of Jewish presence in the different cities where they live. Check this out verse 20 earlier in that chapter, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled and from blood. Why? Verse 21, for Moses has had throughout many generations, those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. This is what I want you to understand. The prohibition of these specific things that would not normally be prohibited unto believers. Now, sexual immorality is another thing altogether. That's clearly prohibited for believers from many other passages 
in the Old and the New Testament, New Testament especially. So we're going to put that in a different thing. There's so much other that the New Testament talks. But when you talk about meat sacrificed to idols, uh, things strangled and things in blood, the things mentioned in verse 20 and 21, the reason is for the things stated here in verse 21. It's because of the significant Jewish presence in all these different cities. What I'm trying to get at is this. What they wrote in this letter to the first century churches was not binding upon all Christians in all places for all ages. It was done specifically so as to not offend the conscience of Jewish believers um, or Jewish uh, potential believers, Jewish uh, those who could be evangelized among the Jews. It was to not needlessly offend them. It was for an evangelistic purpose. Now, depending on context, that may or may not be applicable to someone today. We should not do anything that would needlessly offend the people around us and turn them off to the gospel. Again, if you're going to offend somebody and turn them off, let it be for the right thing. Let it be for the preaching of the gospel. But what they wisely told them here with the Jerusalem Council is, don't do it, Gentile believers, regarding these things because of the witness to the Jews all around you. So really, that's what it comes down to for you there um, uh, regarding these things. Uh, and I hope that that makes it clear to you. Again, um, let me go back to this. Uh, again, Susie's question, can Christians eat meat with blood? All right, let me go on to the next question here. Uh, Levy says, Romans chapter 2, verse 13 in the ESV, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Well, again, um, Levy, I, you, you're not asking a specific question about that. I don't know if you're just asking me to explain that verse, but I'm, I'm happy to explain the idea. There in Romans chapter 2, Paul is explaining what it takes to be justified by law. If you are going to be justified by the law, by your law keeping, it can't just be by hearing the law. It has to be by doing it and doing it in its entirety. Paul's whole point there is to show his readers and us that nobody has truly kept the law in that way. That's why we need Jesus and we need the salvation that only Jesus can bring. So that's the whole context there in Romans chapter 2, uh, that if you're going to be justified or saved or made right with God by the law, you have to do the entire law. You can't just hear it. Okay, so I hope that helps you there. Gray asks, David, did you read the book of Enoch? What are your impressions? Well, um, I read the book of Enoch years ago. I have it up here on some of my shelves off to my left here. Um, I do remember reading the book of Enoch many years ago. Um, it, it belongs to what is sometimes called the apocryphal literature of the Old Testament. And it's a line or two from it is actually quoted in the book of Jude. It's an interesting book. I don't know if we can say that it's been well-preserved, how much of it is what Enoch actually wrote. Now, we note that the one aspect that Jude quotes, Enoch wrote that, but how much of it has been corrupted, we don't really know. It's interesting, but it's not scripture. 
It's not the word of God. And we just make a clear distinction between what might be of historical interest, like the other more classical books of the Old Testament Apocrypha, First and Second Maccabees, uh, you know, the, these other such books as this, First and Second Esdras. These books are, are of historical interest, but they're not on the same level as Scripture. I, I would just generally put the book of Enoch in that same category. So that's my impression of it. Sandra asked a question. Hello, Pastor. We are to look for the abomination of desolation. Can you explain what that is? Well, Sandra, I think you're asking a very important question. What is the abomination of desolation? And I'm not going to turn to the specific passages, but I would just say that from Daniel chapter 9, and I think later on again in chapter 12, from uh, Matthew chapter 24, from First and Second Thessalonians, and from the book of Revelation, drawing together all those things that the Bible says in regard to the abomination of desolation, either calling it specifically that or in reference to it. I, I believe that the abomination of desolation is some kind of statue or image. Uh, some people think that given modern technology, it might be a hologram type image. You know, we usually think of a statue, but, you know, it could be some sophisticated technology, but it will be an image set up in a temple, a Jewish temple standing in Jerusalem. I think that the understanding of what the abomination of desolation is, is one of the key things to get right in our understanding of prophecy. Now, I've read widely on this, and you know, you can probably come to 20 or 30 different interpretations of what the abomination of desolation is. But, but I really think that the most plain, straightforward, the, the most just straightforward from the text, you could call it a literal, but it's just what the text would most straightforwardly say. Abomination is a kind of a technical word in biblical Hebrew for a terrible idolatry. It is an abomination that brings desolation. In other words, the wrath and the judgment of God. And totalitarian governments, um, destruction here, the uh, standards of Roman soldiers in 70 AD, on and on. All of these, I think, twist and stretch the idea of what the abomination and desolation is so far as to make it unrecognizable. So I think this is the pivotal sign of the Great Tribulation and the very soon glorious second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, I believe that this is a matter of great debate among Christians, and I don't mean to get into the debate. I'm just giving you my perspective. I believe that God will catch away the church before the abomination of desolation is revealed. Now, some people have a hard time with that. They say, didn't Jesus tell us to look for the abomination of desolation in Matthew chapter 24? And absolutely he did. 
But Jesus wasn't saying that to every Christian throughout all generations that they would see the abomination desolation. Specifically, that word is spoken to those who believe at that time. And I believe that that will be after the church is caught up to meet Jesus, uh, as is described in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So, uh, um, I, I don't believe that Jesus' reference to the abomination desolation means that every Christian will see it. Of course not. But he does make the abomination desolation very central to his idea of what he's trying to get across in the Olivet Discourse, that great teaching he did on the Mount of Olives found in Matthew chapter 24 and 25. So again, I, I don't know, Sandra, if I've answered your question there, but I, I really believe that we just take the Bible as straightforwardly as possible. Of course, sometimes the Bible speaks in images and signs and metaphors, of course, but we, we don't force metaphors or images or signs upon it. We take it as straightforwardly as possible. And the most straightforward answer to that question, given what it says in Daniel, in Matthew, in First and Second Thessalonians, and in the book of Revelation, is that what we're talking about here is some kind of image set up in a Jewish temple, uh, in the most holy place of a Jewish temple, an idolatrous image. Okay, going on here, Kevin says, should we not pay taxes since the government will use tax money for abortion? Kevin, this is a good question. Um, part of it is given up to the individual Christian conscience. So I'll just try to reason through it the way somebody might uh, regarding their own individual conscience. Um, I could see where somebody would say, uh, well, um, now, with a new administration, uh, the government is actually funding abortion, the killing of babies in the womb, and uh, I don't want to be any part of that, so I'm not going to pay taxes. Part of that is that um, if a Christian wanted to take that stand, they felt uh, moved by their conscience to do exactly that, they had prayerfully and by conscience they come, then I would say, then do what your conscience tells you to do before God. How could I say anything different? However, you got to take your lumps. And so when they fine you, if they jail you for not paying your taxes, you just have to take your punishment and regard it as this is punishment I'm taking for the cause of Christ in obeying my conscience uh, before God. Now, there are some people who would say, well, um, I'm just going to not pay a portion of my taxes because of that. That might be another stance to take. Uh, somebody might say, well, um, I'm going to make contributions to pro-life organizations and, uh, um, you know, healthcare services that seek to guide people away from the abortion industry. Um, that could be another way. So I, I'm saying, I, I don't think that that would be a biblical command to not pay your taxes because of that. You, you could say that there were all sorts of immoral things that the Roman government was involved in uh, at the time that Jesus said that we should render under Caesar what is Caesar's. But if a person was so moved by their conscience before God, then I certainly wouldn't tell them that they shouldn't do it. But I would say... Um, 
as uh, boldly and as courageously as possible. You just take your lumps and count it as, as what you do for obeying your conscience before the Lord. Hope that's helpful for you there, Kevin. Um, Donald says, how did Noah know which animals were clean and unclean before Leviticus? Donald, that's a great question because uh, when God spoke to Moses in the book Moses, Noah, you know, for some reason, when often when I mention Noah or think Noah in my mind, I say the name Moses instead. I don't know why. It's a weird thing in my head. Despite that, when God spoke to Noah and told him to bring animals onto the ark, he told them to bring a certain number of clean animals, animals fit for sacrifice, and a certain number of other animals. And Donald's question is great here. How did Noah know, I almost said Moses, how did Noah know which animals were clean and unclean? Donald, let me give you the answer to that question. We don't know. We just don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. All I can say is that there were customs of sacrifice that went all the way back to the Garden of Eden. When Cain and Abel brought their sacrifices, they, they knew that there was some custom to follow. They especially knew that sacrifices should be offered by faith. By the way, that's really the difference between Cain's sacrifice and Abel's sacrifice. Abel brought a blood sacrifice of an animal. Cain brought a sacrifice of the produce of the ground, fruit, vegetable, grain, whatever. Some people think that Abel's sacrifice was accepted because it was a blood sacrifice. Cain's sacrifice was rejected because it was a not a bloody sacrifice. It was a sacrifice made up of produce from the ground. That's not the difference between their sacrifices. Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 11 that Abel's sacrifice was accepted by God because it was made in faith. Faith or unbelief was the difference between the two sacrifices, not blood or no blood. Now, uh, having said that, there was some understanding of sacrifice that we're just simply not told of. And apparently as part of that understanding of sacrifice was the understanding that some animals are fit to be sacrificed to God and some animals are not. Now, Donald, a question that fascinates me that I don't have any answer to, but it's just fascinating to me. Was Noah's list of clean animals the same as the list of clean animals in the law of Moses that you'd find in Exodus and Leviticus? And again, we don't have an answer to that question, but to me, that's a fascinating question, one way or the other. So again, thank you for that, Donald. Good question. I'm sorry I don't have a better answer, but again, I, I, I don't want to speak where the Bible does not speak. Um, a commentator I love to quote, John Trapp, this great Puritan commentator of the uh, 17th century, I believe. He said, uh, where the Bible has no tongue, we must have no ears. <laughs> where the Bible doesn't speak, we shouldn't pretend to listen. So, continuing on. Jordan asks a question. Hello, Pastor. Thanks for your time. I left this question last time, but sadly you didn't have time. They are, number one, are you a Calvinist? I ask because I know that Charles Spurgeon was, and though I love his life and work, I know you quote him in your commentary. Uh, 
Uh, do you have any tips for a young pastor studying the Bible? Okay, Jordan, well, I'm happy to answer these questions. No, I'm not a Calvinist. I do not subscribe to the five points as they are commonly understood by most Calvinists or people in the Reformed camp. And I also do not believe in sort of what I think is like the hinge on which Calvinism or Reformed doctrine unfolds, at least their doctrine returns to salvation, to give it a fancy term, their soteriology. I do not believe in that fundamental thing that we have to be born again before we believe. I, I don't think that that is the natural teaching of the scriptures. I think the natural teaching of the scriptures is that we believe and then we're born again. Now, I don't believe that we can believe in and of ourselves on our own. I believe that God has to do a prior work in a person before they can believe. I don't have any doubt about that. I would just argue that that prior work is not the same as being born again. I, I hope that's understandable. So I, I'm not a Calvinist. I'm not reformed in my theology, but I, I like to give two caveats to that. I have learned and gained a lot from Calvinistic or reformed pastors, preachers, and teachers, and commentators through the years. And one of them, you mentioned Charles Spurgeon. I've gained a lot from Charles Spurgeon through the years. Uh, here's my Spurgeon bobblehead that I have. I don't have it back behind me today. Uh, today I have Sandy Koufax because uh, the baseball preseason has started. Spring training pitchers and catchers have reported. So in honor of that, I have Sandy Koufax on the bobblehead. But Charles Spurgeon, listen, uh, I... I love Spurgeon's um, preaching. I feel like I've gained and learned so much without subscribing to every single point of his theology. I'll say another thing about Spurgeon's Calvinism. I know there's people that love to play debating quotes with Spurgeon. There's a well-known quote from Spurgeon where he basically says, uh, I'll paraphrase, Calvinism is the gospel and the gospel is Calvinism. Full stop, you know, that's all there is to it. Well, it's true. He said things like that. More particularly, he said more things like that earlier in his ministry. But there are many quotes from Spurgeon where he expresses Calvinism in what I would say in such a sensible, generous way. For example, there's a quote, uh, maybe I'll put it in the uh, uh, video description. I'll find this quote and put it in the video description. There's a quote from Spurgeon where he basically says, um, some people call me a Calvinistic Arminian. Other people call me an Arminian Calvinist. He says, it doesn't matter to me just as long as I stay close to my Bible. Uh, another well-known quote by Spurgeon says something like this. Um, if you ask me why a man is saved, I'll give you the Calvinistic answer. It's only due to God. Then he said, if you ask me why a man is damned, I'll give you the Arminian answer. It's only due to man alone, and it's not God's fault in any way. So again, in many ways, I would say that Spurgeon was a um, generous and, 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 you know, I don't know, I want to say sensible, but maybe that's not the best word, Calvinist. So number one, um, I'm not a Calvinist. I'm not reforming my theology. Number two, I have learned and benefited from many Reformed or Calvinistic 
pastors, preachers, theologians, Bible commentators. Number three, for those reasons, I don't consider myself an anti-Calvinist. Now, I'll debate it if people want, you know, but I, I'm not on a mission to refute Calvinism, um, though when it comes up, I don't mind talking about it. But again, I, I don't see Calvinists as enemies of the faith, um, except I would suppose in rare circumstances. So again, I, I hope that answers your question. Secondly, do I have any tips for young pastors studying the Bible? Uh, Jordan, I, I would say this. If you've never done this before, do this. See, what I think young pastors and young people, period, pastors or not, need to do if they want to be used by God is they need to really grow in their biblical knowledge. A general observation I have about our younger generation, which I'm generally positive about. Um, I, I have high hopes for the work of God as it continues on in the world in generations to come. But one of the things I observe is that I see a generation of young servants of God who know a lot about technology. They know a lot about the culture. They know a lot about innovation and methods and strategies. What I don't see them always so strong with is just their basic biblical knowledge. Their mastery, if we could use a term, because nobody truly masters the scripture, but in that direction, their mastery of the Bible. And that's really what I would exhort. Go deep in the scriptures. Meditate on the scriptures. Think your way through the Bible. Here's the way that I recommend to people to think their way through the Bible. Get out some kind of journal or notebook. Read through the Bible, chapter by chapter. Start at Genesis. Go to Revelation. Read through the Bible, chapter by chapter, and write a one-sentence summary of every chapter of the Bible. You do that, you will grow in your Bible knowledge remarkably. Again, only one sentence, because that'll make you think it through and really have to boil it down. A one-sentence summary of every chapter in the Bible. Do that, and that'll give you a radical increase. You'll think your way through the whole Bible. Learn how to grow deep and go deep and really meditate on the Scriptures. That's the advice I would give you, George. So again, thank you for your questions there. Uh, Karen, um, asks, okay, just makes a comment about going and speaking with the Holy Spirit. Yes, I agree, Karen. We need to go deeper and deeper. Um, Robin asks a question. Why does Jesus teach his disciples to pray in Matthew chapter 6, verse 13? Do not lead us into temptation. Would the Lord always deliver us from temptation instead of leading us into a blessing from Germany? Well, Robin, God bless you. I love connecting with our uh, global, our European leaders. Blessings to you from Germany. We got big news uh, that we'll be talking about more and more in coming weeks about uh, my Bible commentary translated into German. But Robin, to simply answer your question like this, for, first of all, understand this. The word that's translated temptation um, is the same word that you could also translate it testing, proving. It's the same idea. 
God will never entice us to evil. The book of James makes that very clear. But there are times when God will allow our faith to be tested in any number of ways. But really taking with the broadness of that word, temptation, test, proving, what this really is, is this is a prayer, Lord, um, don't allow anything in my life beyond what I can handle. Now, beyond what we can handle trusting him, but, but Lord, don't lead me, don't allow me any testing that is beyond my ability. Uh, I, I need to be kept from evil, from the evil one is actually the idea there in that phrasing. So really, we don't have to read or understand that, especially in light of the broadness of the term temptation there and what the rest of the scriptures tell us about God and temptation, especially in James. We don't have to think that, well, God might tempt us to evil, kind of entice us to evil unless we pray this. That's not the idea at all. It's really a prayer to God that we would not venture and be led, be allowed anything beyond our ability to endure and resist as we trust in him. So again, thank you for that, Robin. Let me go on. Maybe I got time for another couple questions here. Uh, Jordan Kevin says, um, I backed out of a lucrative business deal because there were lies involved. But now I feel dumb because the other prof party profited big time since they kept my cut. Now I feel strange. What does the Bible say? Well, Kevin, I, I sympathize with you. That's got to hurt. There, out of integrity, you're involved in a business deal that has a lot of lies associated with it. And then you back out of it. And uh, what happens? Well, it's very profitable for somebody else. Kevin, I, I would just remind you of what Jesus said. He said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Now, I can understand and I don't want to... Um, underestimate the fact that you're out some money that you would have had. You are. Somebody else got what you might have gained um, had you remained in that deal. But the integrity of your life and of your soul before God is even more valuable and even more precious. Kevin, don't ever forget that there are things that money can't buy and a clean conscience before God is one of those things that money can't buy. Peace in the soul that flows from a clean conscience with God is something that money can't buy. So Kevin, it's true, you're out some money and that never feels good. But remember what Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he were to gain the whole world and lose his soul? I would just tell you, surrender this to God as a glad sacrifice unto him and trust that God will um, deal with it and uh, reward you as you should be rewarded. R remember that Jesus said that there's nobody who gives up anything for his sake who is not more than rewarded, more than compensated, Jesus said, in this age and in the age to come.
we, we can't outgive God. And there is a sense, Kevin, in which you gave this up for the Lord, obviously. We can't outgive God. He'll find a way, either now or in eternity, to more than make it up for you. So may that help lessen the sting of what you think about when you think about that, that particular sense of loss. All right, maybe one more question. Uh, a witness says, Hi, David, was Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10 fulfilled at Calvary, or is it still future, perhaps at the end of the millennium? Well, let me turn to that. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10, where we read that the dispen that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. Well, I love that verse. To me, that is sort of a critical verse in understanding God's great plan of the ages. But a witness, I would just say this, in its ultimate sense, that's only going to be fulfilled at the glorious return in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. When all things are resolved in Christ, I would say it's only going to be finally fulfilled at the end of what we see God's plan of the ages, at least as it's given to us in the scriptures, after the great white throne judgment, after all these things are resolved, then everything will be resolved, summed up in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the answer to every question. Now, that is true now, but it has not yet been displayed to the entire universe as it will be displayed, given that coming day. So, there is certainly a sense in which God uh, began that reconciliation, began that work long ago, but it is not in fact completed until God's redemptive plan of the ages is completed and all things are finished in Jesus Christ. I hope that's a helpful idea there for you. Well, we've about hit our hour mark, just gone a little bit over it. I'm very grateful for all of us. You could join us today and uh, God willing. And if we live, we'll be back next Thursday for another live Q&A. Uh, remember to do all the things you're supposed to do. I get kind of weary of saying it, but I'm supposed to say subscribe, encourage other people to subscribe to this YouTube channel, click for the notifications. Uh, thank you for your comments. Thank you for your likes, all the rest of it. Uh, we're very blessed by what God is doing with this YouTube channel, though we have something of a humble start. We are very blessed to see how God is using it. Um, if you'd like my online Bible commentary, you can find it at EnduringWord.com. Easily found. So I want to thank you for joining us today. God bless you, and it's been great to have you. Thank you. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.